We're in a series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, um, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. This is part eight in that series, and we are uh, at the message, the prophetic message to the church in Philadelphia, um, titled Brotherly Hatred in the City of Brotherly Love. Brotherly Hatred in the City of Brotherly Love, and I trust you'll understand uh, why I've titled it that way before long. Uh, But if you would, read with me from Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, and I'll be reading from the New International Version of Scripture. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave, leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down um, out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, let us have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches from this message to Philadelphia. And through it, help us to be overcomers, conquerors, victors in Christ Jesus and in His victory. In Jesus' name, amen. The name of the city of Philadelphia is uh, a tale of two brothers. Of course, you might know that Philadelphia means city of brotherly love, although the sports fans from the uh, more recently named Philadelphia don't often give you that opinion, but that's neither here nor there. This is a different Philadelphia that we're speaking about, one in Asia Minor. And it is a tale of two brothers, uh, Eumenes, uh, he was the firstborn son, and Atalus, two, the second was the second-born son of uh, Atalus, or Atalus, we'll call him Atalus, I guess, the first, king of Pergamum. You might remember Pergamum. We were there a couple of weeks ago uh, in our message. And when Atalus I, the father, the king, died, Eumenes, because he was the first-born son, uh, became king. And in royal families, you might be aware, succession can turn into a bloody affair. However, Attalus II, the younger brother, was unique in this regard. He worked as the right-hand man of his brother, Eumenes, and demonstrated extraordinary loyalty. For example, when it was believed that his brother, King Eumenes, uh, had uh, been killed in an attack while returning from Rome, uh, he, Attalus II, married his widow and ascended the throne. So he marries the queen and ascends the throne. But when his Brother returned very much alive, as it turns out. Uh, He immediately divorced the supposed widow, returning both the throne and the queen to his brother. Attalus also made frequent trips to Rome, 
uh, as an uh, uh, official attache on behalf of his brother. On one visit, Rome offered to help him overthrow his brother Eumenes so that he could ascend the throne, but he declined. Well, there are two versions of how the city then received its name. Either Eumenes named the city Philadelphia, brotherly love, to honor his brother's loyalty, or after Eumenes' death, Attalus II named the city brotherly love because of his love for his brother. Either way, it was indeed a city that represented true brotherly love. The prophetic message given to the church in Philadelphia sadly concerns a different kind of story, a story of brotherly jealousy and rivalry, not brotherly love. More like Esau and Jacob than Eumenes and Attalus, or maybe like another story that you've heard before, the parable of the prodigal son, in which there's an older jealous brother who has labored many years, and a younger profligate prodigal brother whom he despises for his loose living and wild spending. The Jews of Philadelphia, it turns out, in good older brother fashion, because they despise the Christian followers of the Messiah, Jesus, have excommunicated them from the synagogue. And this has left the church in a weak position, vulnerable to social and legal censure. The church has endured persecution well, despite how small and weak it left them. And Christ has something to say to them, something he's so excited to tell them that he seems to keep interrupting himself to say it. But first, and before we get to that, let's look at Christ's credentials. And so that's our first of five headings. uh, I will tell you up front, you're going to think when I'm in the second heading that I've spent way too much time there, but no fears. Points three and four really are essentially nothing. And then we get to five because this letter or this message is a little unique in that regard. Um, But under Christ's credentials, verse 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia. So what's happening in in Philadelphia? What's the background? Well, I've just described it to some degree, but let me give you a little bit more detail to help you understand what's going on here. To keep the peace, Rome had officially recognized the Jewish religion in the empire as a whole as a legal religion. Because of that, the Jewish people didn't have to participate in emperor worship. They didn't have to participate in idol worship in order to avoid legal problems with the empire. And Christianity, when, when it was first born, because, I mean, let's face it, their scriptures were the same scriptures as the Jews. They, that was what they preached from. And so they functioned as a, a, a sect of Judaism as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. And that worked great for them because it exempted them from much of this legally required worship of the emperor and these various gods, which seems so strange to us, but that was the world they lived in. Well, later on, Jewish leaders began to excommunicate the Christians from the synagogue on grounds, many cases, that they were following a false Messiah, even worshiping him as God. Jealousy was their primary motivation. We see an example of this in Ephesus in the book of Acts, chapter 19, 
when the, the people started listening to Paul, and he's there, and he's speaking, and finally they boot him out of the synagogue, and they go over to uh, a, a, another place, the, the hall of Tyrannus, and begin uh, doing things there. In Philadelphia, the synagogue rulers were likely accusing these believers before the Roman courts, hence the title, Synagogue of Satan. Remember, Satan means the accuser. And we, we looked at this back in Smyrna because the same language is used there about synagogue of Satan. And so reflect back there, go back, you know, get a little more background. But, but what's taking place is the synagogue leaders are accusing the Christians. They're, they're excommunicating them and likely accusing them in the legal courts of, uh, one, saying, hey, they're not Jews. And because they're not Jews... They are not exempt from worshiping these idols and the emperor, and so then they're now subject to censure and punishment. And so that became a real issue in the church in the early days, and certainly in Asia Minor where emperor worship got its start. To be clear, these synagogues did not call themselves synagogues of Satan. (laughs) They were just synagogues, just like the so-called deep secrets of Satan, well, Those weren't like people were calling, hey, we're believing in the deep secrets of Satan. No! (laughs) They wouldn't have thought that. That wouldn't have made any sense to them. They were deceived. But Jesus is referencing them that way. And so what you have is the older brother, that's the Jews by natural right, who have booted out the younger, and that is the Christians, the followers of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus identifies himself, as he does in each of these messages, by particular titles. And the first one, the words of him who is holy. He's the holy one. You might read that line this way. Thus says the holy one. Okay. The exact same Greek phrase is found in the Greek version of Isaiah 30, verse 12, in the Septuagint. And there the ESV reads this way. Thus says the holy one. So it is a valid way to translate it. Thus says the Holy One. And there the words are added of Israel, the next two words. So thus says the Holy One of Israel. Then three verses later in, in Isaiah 30 verse 15 it says, Thus says the Lord God or Yahweh God. That's that all capitalized Lord, meaning it's translating Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh God, the Holy One of Israel. So, There we find this phrase, the Holy One. It was actually used 30 times in um, Isaiah. In in this uh, phrase, the same as in the Greek. In the Greek Old Testament of Isaiah, it's used 30 times. Jesus' prophetic message to Philadelphia draws heavily on Isaiah. We'll see that in a moment as we get down to the the heart of the letter, or or the message. It's drawing heavily on Isaiah. Uh, And by using this phrase, what Jesus is doing is, He's identifying himself as the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. That's who he is. Yahweh God, in fact. And he's not just the Holy One, he's the Holy One, the true One. The true One. Now, there are two ways to understand this, which are not mutually exclusive, could could involve both, to be sure. First, it's that he is the faithful one, to be true. If, if your spouse remains true to you, what do you mean? You mean that they've remained faithful to you. We use it that way. To have a true friend means that you have a faithful friend. And therefore, they are truly your friend. Right? And so Jesus is the true one, certainly in that sense, as God was faithful to his people. But secondly, and I think this one probably is the emphasis here, 
is that he is the true one as opposed to the false one. Not the false one, but the true. He is the true one. Though they were, the, the, the church in Philadelphia was being excommunicated, they were being excommunicated for believing in a false Messiah. The, the fact of the matter is, he's not a false Messiah, he's the true Messiah. And he is the true Holy One of Israel. And then he grabs this title, the one holding the key of David. Goes on with a little more description. Now, most of the credentials of Christ in these prophetic messages have been drawn from the vision of Christ that we see in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, the end of that chapter. You'll see bits and pieces of that grabbed and used. And so he gets to something that in a way does. And you may recall in the various other messages I've said, virtually all the titles come from that vision. Well, when I say virtually all the titles, well, this one is a little bit of an exception, you might say. But gets really close. Because there he says, I'm the one who has the keys. Well, they're not the same keys we see here. The keys of death and hell, right? Death and the grave. He has those keys. But here... That key metaphor is flipped a little bit. He's the one who has the keys of David. And, and so we find there's a switch in it. Um, it's the key of the kingdom itself. Okay, The key to the house of David comes, that, that phrase, that language comes from Isaiah 22. Now, in Isaiah 22, Shebna, who's the palace administrator for King Hezekiah, uh, I mean, he's, he's you know, running things. He's got power there. We read the following. And so he, he becomes proud and arrogant in what we're about to read. He's told this. And he's going to be replaced with Eliakim, who is a forerunner to Jesus. So here's what we read in Isaiah 22, beginning in verse 15. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty, or Yahweh Almighty says, go say to this steward, to Shebna, the palace administrator, what are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock? He went to the place where all the kings were buried and made himself a little grave there, as if he were the king. A little bit presumptuous. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. And then verse 19, I will depose you from your office and you will be ousted from your position. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. That's where that language in our message comes from to Philadelphia that Christ is using. The palace administrator has all authority over the palace, which is the seat of power in the kingdom. It's probably the closest thing we can relate to in our government is the president's chief of staff. I mean, they they have huge influence. Uh, And and the, the language of keys doesn't make sense to us. You know, we, we, we have keys. I mean, I, I, I've got these keys, and that's only because I bring some of my keys. And there's keys everywhere. We have a whole, like, drawer in our uh, uh, hutch where there's this one thing, this jar that's got, like, keys. You know, 
Keys. You've got that. I know by the laugh. You've got that thing of keys. Half of them you don't know what they go to, right? And keys everywhere. Okay? And occasionally you find one you need so you can't dare throw it out. And so that's the way it works. But you, you couldn't just run down to Lowe's or to Ace Hardware and buy a, a, a duplicate key. Man, hey, we're going to get a copy of the key. I, I go down there. We go down there. I'm going to need a copy of this key. We need a copy of this key. You couldn't do that at that time. Generally speaking, there was one key. And whoever had the key, they had complete power over access. They had complete authority over who could see the king, who could not see the king. Who had access to the king, who did not have access to the king. Who had access to anything in the palace, for that matter. They were in charge. They were in control. Jesus is the one who, with that authority. All access to God is through him. Those in the synagogue who did not believe in Christ did not have access. Christ had access, and he was the one who opened and closed doors. Now, Eliakim foreshadows what is fulfilled in Christ. Eliakim was, as we saw in that text that we read, going to be made a father to those in Jerusalem. He is a father to them. And we read in Isaiah 9, you may recall, because we use this during Advent, we speak of this text in Isaiah 9, verse 6, where the child to be born was to be called what? Everlasting Father. We aren't accustomed to thinking of a ruler as a father, but in the Middle East, it is still a common way of thinking. So, for instance, even until the middle of the last century, the Turkish ruler's title was Ataturk, which means father of the Turks. That was the ruler's title, father of the Turks, and they would think of him as their father. You know, we read in in the psalm, as a father cares for his children, so the Lord has compassion on you, right? So, as a father, well, he was a king over Israel, but he was thought of as their father who had compassion on them because that's the kind of good king that they wanted. Well, upon Eliakim would be like a father to the people. Upon Eliakim's shoulder will be placed the key, we are told, or the authority of the house of David. And with the promised child, we read that the government will be on his shoulder. Same word. So you see how Eliakim's a father to the ch- or a, a foreshadowing of the child to come. That is promised in Isaiah. Just as Eliakim had authority over Hezekiah's palace, Christ has all authority over God's kingdom. Who comes in and who goes out? Because he will never shut the door on their inclusion to God's household or God's kingdom, no one, including the synagogue rulers, can truly shut them out. Amen? And that leads to the second thing, which is Christ's commendation. Now, this is where most of the time is spent by Christ. And so we'll spend a good bit of time here because this is the emphasis in this message. And it begins in verse 8, I know your deeds. And then it kind of tails off, and we'll get to that in a moment. So in four uh, messages, the commendation begins with, I know your deeds. In a fifth message, the one we looked at last week in Sardis, where there is... Nothing to commend in Sardis, the place where one expects the commendation. It begins, I know your deeds, but then Christ tells them that they are, in fact, dead and not alive. So, a little bit of a sight going on there. But to Philadelphia, the commendation begins, I know your deeds, but then it never gets out of the gate. Like, wait, 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 there's something else in my mind, I've got to say something. It's, you know, it's a little bit, you know, if one were to just simply look at this paragraph... Uh, they might wonder if the resurrected Jesus battled with ADHD. Um, <laughs> and for those that struggle, like I, I do, you, you, might, you might be able to relate to that. 
Um, as one diagnosed ADHD person uh, told me a joke um, uh, one time, they said, uh, you know how many ADHD people it takes to screw in a light bulb? And of course, I thought for a moment and said, uh, no. He said, you want to go ride bikes? <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and that's kind of what's going on here, okay? I know your deeds. Oh, guess what? I've got a promise for you, and I can't wait to tell you. And so he goes on to that, an open door. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. By the way, the Greek structure is so convoluted that it's hard to, to figure out what's going on simply because he does keep interrupting sentences with other sentences and then getting back to a sentence that he never completed and then finishing them. So I'm not making this stuff up. And so what is this open door? Some take this to mean that they were going to have a great evangelistic opportunity. See, I've placed before you an open door. And because Paul speaks about a door being opened for the gospel in his ministry. However, I would suggest that's more eisegesis than exegesis. In other words, we're importing meaning into the text rather than taking meaning out of the text. Now, granted, we're taking it from another place, and it's a good thing. It's just not the thing I think that this text is talking about. It doesn't fit the context. And as you know, context is king. It's the door to the messianic kingdom, the heavenly city, the the true people of God. That's the door that he opens to them. The persecution that this church is experiencing, like that of the church in Smyrna, is a conflict with the Jews of the synagogue. They were being kicked out or excommunicated from the synagogue. The door has been shut to them. But Christ opens a far more important door. The door to his end times messianic kingdom. And when I say end times messianic kingdom... Just for the record, because I know when we use that word end times, we often think, oh, the end times that are coming one day, those times. No, no, no. In biblical language, when we say the end times, messianic kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom that began with the resurrection of Jesus and is still going on. The end times, according to Acts chapter 2, began on the day of Pentecost. So that's the end times messianic kingdom that I'm talking about, to be clear about that. And it is the same kingdom about which John wrote, I, John, this is in chapter 1, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The members of this church were joined with John in the affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance because of the word of God and bearing witness to the truth of Jesus. Jesus is the one with the key to the house of David, not the synagogue ruler. He is the one who lets people into David's kingdom, which really is God's kingdom. He's the one who lets them in, and nobody can shut that door on them. Now, back to the commendation. We pick up in the third part, phrase of verse 8. Uh, Most English translations restate the words, I know, from the beginning of the sentence, but they aren't really there. But it does help. Read it that way. He picks up mid-sentence. I I know that, that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So these are the works that he's commending in them. This church is weak by all worldly measure. 
No doubt small, according to Hebrews, people, when persecution comes, people tend to shrink back, right? And so when, when the persecution, when people are being kicked out of the synagogue, there were probably a number of folks who, like, yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of liked what they were saying, but if it's going to cost me this much, you know, I'm going to hang out here at the synagogue. Yeah, I'm not going to follow Jesus. That's cool. And so they were small. They were small, but they were weak in so many ways. They were suffering. This church would not have a reputation like the church in Sardis that we looked at last week. And when, when, when people are suffering, people tend to wonder what's wrong. What, what, something must be wrong, right? Because if everything's right, then we don't suffer. That's the logic that we tend to apply. It's not real. <laughs> it's, it's a lie. So everybody begins to ask, why? Why are they suffering so much? Maybe God's not for them. And so they're weak. They're small. But despite this, the church had kept Christ's word and had not denied his name. This doesn't mean that they kept Christ's words in the way that one might keep a Bible with the gold gilded edges uh, as a centerpiece on the bookshelf in their home. It's not what it means when it says they kept his word. Or like one might keep a Bible in a nice case and carry it wherever they go so that everybody knows they've got the biggest one, right? It's not what it means when it says that they kept his word. It's not they keep it with them. They didn't keep it in an honored place. No, to keep it was to obey it. It was to obey it. They held tight to it. They would not deny the deity of Christ, nor would they worship Caesar or the other gods. That's how they kept it. Now, suddenly Christ interrupts himself again and makes yet another promise. So promise number two, I will vindicate you before them, <clears throat> is, is what he's saying here when he says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, as we know from John chapter 8, that being a descendant of Abraham doesn't make one a Jew, right? But only those who come to the truth and walk in the truth that is in Christ. Coming to him, they shall know the truth, and the truth will set them free. So we know that from John. We know that from Paul's writings. Um, so he says, they, they claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, once again, some have suggested that this means that the Jewish members of the synagogue that had accused them would get saved and become worshipers of Jesus. Well, I certainly think some of that was possible if what happens here becomes true, but that's a bit sleight of hand. Because if their falling down before them is understood as worship, and, and that word, falling down before you, that word can be used to mean worship, to be sure. But if it does mean worship, then it is the Christians that they are worshiping and not Jesus. So I wouldn't call that conversion if that were the way we use it. But I don't think it's referencing worship here. Rather, I think we should look to the Old Testament to understand it. And yet again, Isaiah helps us. In Isaiah chapter 60, we have this glorious picture of God's restoration of his people when the kingdom would be restored. And it begins this way. You're probably familiar with these verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But Yahweh, the Lord, rises upon you and His glory appears over you. And then Isaiah pictures Gentiles, strangers, coming and bringing their wealth to Israel. 
And after a lengthy description of the details of this influx, we read this in verse 14. The children of your oppressors will come bowing down before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. He's already identified himself as the Holy One, so we know who Jesus is referencing there. So in a fascinating twist, Jesus and John, who's writing for him, they take a line that was expected to be fulfilled as Gentiles bow down in submission to Israel, and they turn it on its head. Now these Jewish synagogue members who had kicked out the mongrel mix of Jew-Gentile Christians will come and bow down at their feet and, by implication, will acknowledge that they are the true city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. That I, the Holy One, have loved you, as opposed to, say, them. In other words, you're the true ones. This fits the context perfectly, and by acknowledging that Jesus loved them, they are, in fact, acknowledging that they are the true city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now back to the commendation, which flows right into the third promise. So he brings up their commendation again by saying, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, but now he's going to give them a promise. Because you've done this, this thing that I'm commending you for, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So, now, in the first half, uh, where it says, since you have kept my, my command to endure patiently, and that could, if you wanted to translate that woodenly, I wouldn't recommend this translation, I'm just saying, if you want to take it word for word, the way it falls, it, it could read this way. Since you have kept the word of the endurance of mine. Since you have kept the word of the endurance of mine. That's not good English, and you wouldn't really want that read that way. But that tells us that there's two ways to understand this. The first half uh, of that, uh, or the first way would be that of mine is applied to the whole phrase. So you have of mine at the end, but it applies to the whole phrase. Then it is my word about endurance, meaning, as the NIV puts it, my command to endure. Okay, good. If of mine applies to the Uh, endurance, the thing that immediately precedes it, then they have kept the word about Christ's endurance, his obedience, which endured to the point of death. Either way, the result is that they have endured, either because they have obeyed his command or because they knew his example and followed him, but they have endured. But here's the the result of that. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is about to come on the world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So three questions we want to ask about that promise. When he says that, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is about to come on the world to test the inhabitants of the earth. First, what is the scope of the trial? Second, what is the timing? And third, how will he keep them? So first, what is the scope? How broad is this trial? Well, you might say, well, it says the whole world. It's going to come upon the whole world. And and indeed it does. It does say that, at least in our English translation. But to note that the word used for world there is a word that we could also translate Roman Empire. Okay? 
So it's going to come upon the whole Roman Empire, or it's going to come upon the whole world. Those are the two options. Now, you may recall in the birth narrative of Jesus, or for some that might prefer, in Charlie Brown's Christmas, um, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. They're going to take a census of all the world. Now, I think we're all aware that Caesar did not take a census of the entire world. He took a census of the Roman Empire, right? I mean, like, for instance, whatever natives were living in America at that time, they were not counted in this census, right? I mean, so, so we could go on to other cultures and places that were not counted in that census. Uh, or in Acts 11.28, Agabus speaks of a famine that would be over all the world. And, of course, there was probably not a famine in the entire world at one time. But it was the Roman Empire that would have been affected. So it can speak of the Roman Empire, because that was the world as far as they were concerned. Or it can speak of the whole world. So the scope could be either of those. Secondly, what is the timing? When is the, this hour of trial going to occur? Well, it could be an hour of trial which will come at the end of time. Though, in my mind, that rings really hollow because if it's an hour of trial that comes at the end of time, then, well, he's not really keeping them in that hour of trial because they're not going to experience it, nor will anyone else who's been faithful or unfaithful in their community because they won't be alive. I mean, we we may or may not be alive, but certainly they won't be. We're we're, we're clear on that, okay? Um, So it's more likely that it refers to a period of intense persecution that would come in their near future which we do know did occur, okay, there, there was. So they are likely, so it's likely that the scope is the Roman Empire, and it's likely that the timing was in their lifetime, okay? Then it was something that would affect that area and that they would be kept through. So in what sense then, the third question, how will he keep them? Well, elsewhere John records the prayer of Jesus. When Jesus says, and I am no longer in the world, but... They are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. This is in John 17. Keep them, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and that they may be one, even as we are one. In verse 14, it goes on to say, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So, the church in Philadelphia has suffered. And because of their faithfulness in that suffering, Jesus promises that he will preserve them when a time of intense persecution comes. He won't necessarily keep them from experiencing that time of persecution. He will keep them faithful and hold them close and care for them through that time of intense persecution. Well, that was a lengthy commendation period because... There was really nothing to critique. So the the critique is, well, nothing. And then you get to the corrective. Well, if there's nothing to critique, there's not going to be a lot to correct, right? So he says, I am coming soon, in verse 11, hold on to what you have. So while there's no critique, um, such as repent and do this, this, or no no corrective, such as repent and do this, he basically says, keep doing what you're doing. Just keep doing what you're doing which is hold on to what you have. And then there's this promise tagged at the beginning of that, I am coming soon, which we'll talk more about that when we get to Laodicea in the next message. But um, 
likely refers to what we've seen in the other messages, to a coming of Christ to aid them in their situation or to deal with the wicked in their situation. But it does have implications for the future, what we call the second coming of Christ, um, which will uh, be a time of suffering, you know, that he will come in as well. And that get, leads us to our final uh, heading, which is Christ's consequences. Now, again, if there's no uh, critique and there's no corrective, you're not going to have much in the way of negative consequences either, are you? So that whole section is, is minimal. I mean, it's all but missing. Instead of, if you don't, this is what's going to happen, there's only a hint of a negative consequence with the warning, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So in other words, if you don't keep what you're doing, there could be some negative consequences. Okay, so keep doing what you're doing. It, it, it reinforces that. If for some reason you don't continue in the faith, someone, namely the enemy, will take your victor's wreath. Now again, this is not a crown of royalty, but a wreath of triumph to him who overcomes. It's that wreath that you get for overcoming that he's referencing, the promised reward. And that leads us to the positive consequence. Look at verse 12 and 13, if you would again. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I will make, a, make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, that, that does not mean that somebody will be made a literal pillar in the temple of God. That would be more like the white witch and the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, turning subjects into statues. I think we've got a picture of that for those who maybe, no, the other picture. Do you have the other one in there? Right there. So, so see, they're not pillars, they're statues, I get it, but these were actual people. They looked so lifelike, right? Because they were, but they got turned into statues. We're not going to be turned into pillars, stone objects, in the temple of God. In Asia at that time, many temples and buildings of importance had pillars or columns. And often the names of those who were significant or had contributed to the building um, of that temple or that building would have had their names on those columns. And, and so we still speak today. You'll hear about people who are pillars in the community or, you know, people might say in a church, well, we're pillars in the church, right? Uh, in other words, we're, we're somebody around here, you know. <laughs> we're, yeah. it's, we're pillars, right? Um, and we use that same kind of language. But there's this other thing about pillars. Pillars don't come and go. So it's both a way of saying that they, they will be, have significance in the true temple. Um, they won't be booted out like they're being booted out of this synagogue. But they will also have a permanent place in that temple. And you, we've got pictures of, of if that other picture, if you would. So here's, here's ruins of temples. And notice what is still standing in these cases. The, the pillars, right? The, I mean, obviously a lot of pillars do fall down, but, but they were very permanent. They were even more permanent than the rest of the structure in many cases. And to be made a pillar for them, this, remember, what are they suffering? They've been removed from society. They've been removed from the, the synagogue where they've grown up, where their lives have been, where, where they've done life. They've, they've been ostracized. And they're now suffering in the broader community because of that. So to be a 
permanent fixture in God's household is a very meaningful promise to them and certainly to us as well. And I'll write on them three names. We write names on things we own, right? If I have a baseball mitt and I'm going to play, I want to make sure my name's written on it. Or when we go to the airport and we check our luggage, what do we want to make sure is on there? Our name, right? Because we own it. That's ours. And so what are these three names? Well, there's God's name, and there's the name of the heavenly city, and then there's Christ's new name. What are they doing? saying, God will claim you as his own. This city will claim you as its citizens. And my new name, I'm going to put that new one on you because that's how much I claim you. You've been booted out. You've been called false. I've been called false. But I'm true and you're true. And you won't be removed. So never mind what the synagogue leaders did. Christ has given them a prestigious and permanent place in the true temple and has set his seal of ownership on them. Well, just a, a couple of things in closing. You might wonder, you know, what, how does this help me on Monday morning? Like, okay, so we, we know that. How does it help me on Monday morning? Well, truth is, most of us aren't in threat of being kicked out of the local synagogue. And if we were, we wouldn't really care about that. Because we don't participate there, and it doesn't have any real meaning to our life. Nor, nor are we threatened because we have been kicked out to be penalized or ostracized socially from the business community or from our families. So, so what does it have to do with us? We, we, we certainly cannot say that just because I'm a Christian, I get all these promises too. It doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that there's a requirement of faithfulness in the midst of trial to get promises like these certainly delivered as excitedly as Jesus delivered these to them. What are the ways that our faith is put to the test? What are the ways that your faith is put to the test? And what does faithfulness look like for you in that situation? Just think about that. Because I can assure you we all have our faithfulness put to the test. Is it Speaking a word about Christ to your work associates while on lunch break. And, and I'm not talking about the Jesus juke, you know, where you just, they're saying something, you just kind of juke them with Jesus, and yeah, I got you, and you go on. No, no, that's not helpful. It's not being a faithful witness to Jesus, okay? Yeah. Is it inviting your neighbors over for dinner and asking them what they know about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means for them or doesn't? It is easy to be silent or private Christians today. Nobody really cares as long as you're a private Christian. Christians have been conformed to the materialistic mindset, in many cases anyway, that everything that really matters is scientifically provable and therefore public. It can be seen or touched, while matters of faith are private and therefore not public. Faithfulness to Christ will put us into the public sphere. By that, I don't mean politics, to be sure. I, at least not in the way we think about it in America. I'm, I mean where it matters when I say the public sphere. In how you use your income. and in how you make decisions. Do you focus on what serves the kingdom or on only what serves your desires and what you want for your life? 
We don't know what the future holds. At the time when John wrote this, persecution was real, but not intense. It had been intense before under Nero, and it would be again, as we're told. We read of one martyr in the seven churches, Antipas. And what Christ communicates prepares the people of that day for what lay ahead of them. And it will prepare us for what lies ahead of us. Living in the U.S., we've, we've lived in a, really a relatively privileged uh, place in the world. And that's not going to last forever, to be sure. And it isn't likely to last much longer. I don't think we're talking centuries, but m- at most decades, financially. And that will try our faith significantly more than we might think. Jesus says, be ready. I pray that message, this message can help us be prepared and think about what it, how we are to be ready. How do we assess the health of a church? How do we assess the health of a church? Arguably, our measurement standard is quite different than Jesus's. I mean, he considers poor Smyrna and small and weak Philadelphia, two churches that are suffering. He considers them the healthiest of the seven churches. Thyatira, Pergamum, and Laodicea were places where you could be a Christian and prosper, have a balanced life, and yet these were the three unhealthiest of the churches. Certainly think that this should change how we think about church in so many ways and what Christ has called us to be and do as witnesses in the world and in our worship of Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what would it be like to have Christ as excited to make promises to us because of our faithfulness to His name as He was to this church? To Philadelphia, the believers there. They experienced the brotherly hate of those at the Jewish synagogue, but they remained faithful to Your name. Lord, help us to remain faithful to your name regardless of our experience and help us to be ready when those times of intense persecution come on the earth. And I pray that you would keep us in such times through Christ himself by your spirit. And may we hear what the spirit says to the churches. Amen.